From Telluride Science, this is Science Straight Up. What light and this field of biophotonics gives us is a view of the cellular and molecular world. And it's that world where disease starts. Who wouldn't want to, to be able to understand and identify disease at its earliest stages? The true colors of cancer, seeing disease in a new light. I'm George Lewis. And I'm Judy Muller. Dr. Stephen Bopart is a physician and also a professor of electrical and computer engineering and bioengineering at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. He's looking at cancer and other diseases in a new light that could revolutionize medical treatment. I really appreciate the opportunity to share the research that my group has been developing and many in my field, uh, but also research that truly is going to impact all of us. Traditionally, if a patient is suspected of having some form of cancer, the doctor takes a biopsy, a sample of tissue, sends it off to the lab where it's stained with dyes, and then a pathologist examines it under a microscope a process that can take days of anxious waiting for the patient. It's actually over 100 years old in terms of this whole process, and to us it seems a bit archaic. What Dr. Bopart and his colleagues have done is use laser light to examine the tissue right on the spot where the sample is taken. Then, using artificial intelligence, do a quick analysis of how that tissue looks using different wavelengths of light showing off cancerous growths in brightly colored computer-generated images, the true colors of cancer. So imagine then, instead of this image that takes a day or two, we start to get all these types of images in real time, basically by shining different types of light onto the tissue and collecting the light that comes back from different structures. As he speaks, and I'm sorry we can't do it justice in a podcast, Dr. Bopart shows off a series of slides, some of which resemble those spectacular NASA space telescope photos of distant stars and nebulas. One of my uh, grad students likes to call this the tumor galaxy, because if you didn't know we were looking at you know, a microscopic view of tissue, you might think this was coming from the, the Webb telescope that's currently looking at all the galaxies out there. So because these images are so rich with data, we can apply this AI approach and we can actually automate and and have that algorithm identify which regions are more suspicious and which look normal. What's really exciting about all this is that laser imaging can detect activity that may lead to cancer even before malignancies start to form. With this, this type of imaging technology, we see things that people haven't seen before. And when we started imaging, this image came up and we saw all these little blue dots, but no one could really figure out what we were seeing at first. Those little blue dots they saw are vesicles, microscopic sacs filled with liquid. Now these are a new hot topic in science because while biologists and, and medical scientists used to think this, this was just garbage that the cells were trying to get rid of, we now know that the cells use these vesicles to signal other cells throughout the body. Because those vesicles can act as messengers, they may give researchers a new understanding of how cancer recurs in some patients and metastasizes or spreads throughout the body. If this is a different paradigm, what this suggests is that when that first cancer starts to transform and become cancerous, it starts putting out these vesicles very early on. And so even before that that tumor metastasizes. And what it's doing, if you think about it, maybe that that cancer is smart in some way. It's trying to, to basically condition the soil 
to where these metastatic cells will eventually land and, and hopefully grow from the perspective of the tumor. But, uh, but so if that's the case, we have to really think about how to prevent that process and to identify, you know, are there tumor cells present? We know there's tumor cells all the time in our body, but they're, but they're you know, removed by our immune system. But how do we stop or, or evaluate that spreading of these vesicles? And I think this is where a lot of scientists are interested in the therapeutic potential um, of these vesicles and intervening in this process. But uh, there's still a lot, this is the medical science that we're trying to explore. Dr. Bopart says these imaging techniques have potential well beyond treating cancer. This is just opening up a huge range of different applications. We're starting to look at different tissue types, other cancers, uh, states of health and disease, and just finding, we're seeing things that have never been seen before. And with that comes, you know, many new ideas and many new discoveries. You've um, said in previous pre presentations that you yourself are a cancer survivor. And I'm, I'm wondering that uh, you were, di I think, diagnosed with cancer some 30 years ago, so you're That's a long-term right. survivor. Uh, what's, to what degree does that inform and inspire your work? Did, did, did that motivate some of your research? It did, it did. So I, I was diagnosed uh, of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, stage four, so very late stage. Yeah, and you and didn't have, your odds for survival were not good, right? They, they weren't good, it was about 30%. Um, <laughs> and I think 40% risk of just dying from the treatment. This was back when uh, I ended up getting a bone marrow transplant and, and received bar uh, marrow from my, my sister, my only sister, uh, blood-related sister. And, um, and then a 30% chance of, of it just recurring, but it's been 30 years and, and uh, I, you know, I, I think that technology, um, I like to think that, um, you know, engineers can't solve everything, can't fix all the problems. And, and so we have to rely, you know, on this interdisciplinary approach. And it was wonderful physicians and, and wonderful support from family and friends and, and uh, spiritual support, many different types of support that come together to, you know, for this. And, and so it was an inspiration. It really was an inspiration, good and bad. I, I had bad physicians along the way too. And, and they inspired me just as much as the good ones, so. How, how are your vesicles? <laughs> That's a good question. I actually have never, <laughs> yes. I, I have not looked. You know, we have this capability, but you know, I have not looked. And maybe not because I'm afraid to look, but, um, but I, I think I'm a, you know, a very odd case because again, um, the blood circulating in me is from my sister and uh, all the other cells are mine, so. It's interesting because you were talking about the true colors yeah. of cancer. I couldn't get that song out of my head. Was it Debbie Harry? Cindy Lauper. Cindy Lauper. It's going to be there. <laughs> but you know the images, and you mentioned that a, a colleague yeah. said this is like the Webb telescope, and and it really is. They're so fantastical and beautiful. Yeah. You can't believe you're looking at cancer, right? Absolutely. But um, I'm wondering if it's more than a metaphor that this is opening up horizons that you didn't know about before, that, that there are questions you don't yeah. even know. It is because, you know, remarkably, um, from a very artistic point of view, we're fascinated. These images are, are both beautiful, intriguing, um, but also on, ominous as mm -hmm. well, because we know what's behind them. We had, um, in fact, a story uh, we had a, a, a research, a patient coordinator involved in a lot of our clinical studies, and she was a breast cancer survivor herself and, and was just amazed by these images, and she was an artist. 
a watercolor artist. And so she took one of our images and she painted that. And, and it was her way of really approaching and dealing with this disease. And we've had um, almost all of our surgeons that we've worked with have image, these images hanging in their offices because it, 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 I think that's the power of imaging in some sense because it, it, uh, it, it inspires, it raises questions. People ask, what am I seeing? Um, that's how I got interested in imaging because we would see things and we wanted to know what, what are they? Um, and it really opens new worlds to us. You talk about uh, an interdisciplinary approach. You're, you have a background in both engineering and medicine. Uh, I covered tech for a long time. The guys in Silicon Valley believe in the words of Mark Zuckerberg, move fast and break things. Doctors <laughs> believe in the words of Hippocrates, do no harm. How do you reconcile the two? Yeah, well, <laughs> a good question, right? I mean, medicine and engineering, they're very different cultures. And, and they approach problems in a very different way. Um, you know, medicine, very conservative, rightly so. Um, you know, very thorough, systematic, wanting to make sure things are, are, are proven safe, right, before being used. Um, so they're not so creative, and they're not, you know, necessarily risk takers. Uh, whereas engineering, engineers and scientists tend to ask questions, tend to, um, you know, solve problems, tend to break things, um, love complexity. And, uh, and so these are a bit in contrast. And so we've, in fact, at, at the University of Illinois, we've created a new medical school that is about train, training future physician innovators. So we bring in engineers, we teach them, we train them through a medical curriculum, but we train them to, to, to care for patients in very compassionate and caring ways, but, uh, but to really think about innovative solutions to their problems, to not necessarily stop at the status quo, but are there technological solutions to this, their problems? And, and so I think what we're trying to do is, is really bridge these cultures. And I think that's important. That's the essence of interdisciplinarity, is trying to, to, to bring two cultures or fields together, um, encourage them to communicate in new ways. And I, I do truly believe that all the, the, the next great inter, um, inventions and ideas and innovations are going to come at these boundaries between disciplines. Do you see one of your goals as developing an early warning system for cancer that will be able to de detect cancers even earlier than we can now? It is, it is. So, you know, in fact, these vesicles that we're looking at, I, I showed you a number of examples from tissue, um, but they're also in our, in our urine and in our blood. And so we've been actually collecting them from, from urine, uh, from human subjects, those with breast cancer, those uh, healthy subjects. Um, it's a bit more complicated, those optical signals, because uh, again, we don't know how other diseases might impact those, but we're starting to see evidence that maybe uh, this could be also a screening modality, much like you get screened with mammography or colonoscopy or pap smears, you know, maybe, you know, everyone has to pee. So. That's that exactly may be a test. the question yeah. I wanted to ask, is that you had told us uh, in an earlier conversation that this is about five to seven years out from seeing it in clinics and hospitals, right? Well, we hope so. Okay. Yeah, we hope so, so let's assume that's true. What would that mean to a woman who's going in for a, her regular breast exam, uh, for mammographies or MRIs? Yeah. How does that change? 
Yeah, I think that um, before we kind of get to the, you know, that patient, that level, the screening level, I think that this, these technologies are going to have greater impacts on, say, pathology as a field. So um, again, this whole idea of digital pathology, being able to capture these images um, and do that rapidly, I think that's going to have a more of an impact So we're, first. So we're gonna be able to, to see new markers of disease. We're going to be able to get those results earlier, uh, maybe even at the bedside, uh, you know, when you know, the doctor sees that patient. Um, so I think that's going to happen soon. And, and not just my work, but there's a lot of in our community, our, uh, you know, in our, our biophotonics community that are working on this problem. But, so, I inter but I interrupted you because you were saying everybody has to pee. Keep that going. <laughs> what, what that? Yes, yes. So, you know, I think there's lots of ways that we can think about how to non-invasively sample this. There's a lot of work going on looking at other markers for cancer in the blood, and, and I think that's going to be coming as well. And I think we're going to shift. We're going to see a shift, and we're going to be using blood markers or urine markers to tell us there's a cancer present, and we've got to figure out where it is. You come from a small town in Illinois, Harvard, Illinois, population, <laughs> what, 5,000 at yeah. last count? Uh, how soon do you think that rural communities like yours or ours here in Colorado will have access to this technology? Yeah, I think that's you know, one of the goals for a lot of the biomedical engineers these days is they're trying with their, their innovations to make technology you know, better, uh, more sensitive, but also more widely accessible and, and lower cost. And so we understand that those engineering challenges are important to make it, to make the, bring those systems to the rural communities or globally, uh, you know, to, to underserved populations. And, uh, and so that, that is something we're all thinking about. And, and you know, I, I come back to this comparison between medicine and engineering. You know, as, as engineers, we love complexity, right? We love labs that are full of equipment and wires and knobs and, and the more the better. But in medicine, the simpler the better, right? If there's one uh, metric that could be measured that would tell a doctor is this you know, disease or normal, um, that's really kind of what we have to channel our, our technologies to. So while we have a, a very complex laser system, we're also looking for ways that maybe just with a simple LED or a laser pointer, we can identify a marker that will tell us if something is wrong. You mentioned artificial intelligence mm -hmm. in your, and AI sometimes now brings up fear. You know, <laughs> AI, a bad thing. Yeah. But in this case, how is that going to be, how is it really a key yeah. for you? It really is key. And in fact, I think the medical community doesn't always refer to it as artificial intelligence. Um, we like to think our intelligence isn't necessarily artificial, but that it's augmented intelligence. And they truly see these algorithms and these approaches as augmenting their practice, right? That rather than looking at you know, hundreds or thousands of images to see if there's something wrong, let, let an algorithm, let, let you know, a computer do that and, and simply be able to flag is something normal or abnormal. It's a whole lot easier to be able to determine is this a normal or an abnormal than it is to say that that's a specific disease type. And so let the, let the specialist determine what that specific disease type is, but let an algorithm say, is this normal or abnormal? I've heard your technology compared to sonograms, only you're using light instead of ultrasound. Mm -hmm. uh, can it be as non-invasive as a sonogram? Can you, can you shine light through layers of skin without making incisions? Yeah, so that's one of our challenges too. And, and I think if you look all across 
biomedical imaging, you'll see that there's a trade-off we make. So MRI is great, can image all the way through the body, but it doesn't have the resolution to be able to see a single cell, right, or subcellular. With light, we can see those cells, but we can't see those cells throughout the whole body. So we've done a lot of engineering of different beam delivery systems. So fibers, you know, about the size of one of your hairs, um, optical fibers to deliver light into the body, or obviously wherever the light can, can get to. So skin, for instance, through the eye. Uh, typically, we can image just about a millimeter deep um, through tissue with, with light and get these types of images. But, so, um, but yeah, there's ways we can get that light into the body in different ways. So following up on that, are there other diseases besides cancer mm -hmm. where this optical imaging will be a great boon to diagnosis? There is a lot. Um, and in fact, a lot of the technologies, because their eyes are optical instruments, uh, there's been a lot of technologies that will look at the eye, look at the retina, <clears throat> look at the blood flow and circulation in the retina. Um, look at the skin and the vessels you know, within our skin. There's many other ways that we can uh, use light to do that. And I gave some examples of during surgery. So in surgery, you naturally have an opportunity to, of exposed tissue uh, to image with light. And if you think about it, we, there are a lot of optical instruments already in practice. So the colonoscopy that you have, or the bronchoscopy, um, or you go into primary care and they'll use an optical instrument to look into your eye or your ear. So just simply looking at those optical instruments and adding some of the, the new advanced optical imaging is possible too. So you're not saying colonoscopies are going away? No. <laughs> okay. We're, we're thinking about that. Unfortunately, no. <laughs> not in the short term. You're going to be generating mounds and mounds of data with all this technology. Does managing that data worry you? Do, do things like drowning in too much data bother you? Uh, maintaining confidentiality, making sure nobody accesses the yeah. files who shouldn't? Yeah, so those are a couple questions there. First, first the volume of data, right? With, with this multimodal imaging and just the, <clears throat> the, the, the high dimensionality that we see, we, we get terabytes of data. And it, it's just huge, um, enormous amounts of data. But fortunately, you know, the, the computing power has really kept pace too. So the computers, the processing uh, that's possible, uh, the AI algorithms that can help sort through all this data, those have really kept pace. Um, so we love data. The more data, the more information that there is present, and we just have to sort that out. Now, the privacy issue is another fact, too, and that's <clears throat> certainly that's of, of interest and, and concern for all of us as well. I think, <clears throat> in general, people recognize that, that we have to have those protection uh, systems in place to preserve that confidentiality, and, uh, and that, too, is advancing with, with the data we, we collect. Is this going to put pathologists out of business, or do they have to go back to school? I mean, was, are they going to resent you? I mean, what's happening? Yeah, no, I, I don't think anyone in the medical community should be afraid of these advances. They should really look to them as, as uh, augmenting you know, what they can do. Um, but I think the pathologists are probably the most concerned and at risk. Um, you know, we've, we've, we've shared these images, and we've made this, this um, proposition you know, to pathologists to say that you know, we, can, we think we can do better. And about half of the pathologists will say, you know, I, I need that H&E image to be able to make my diagnosis. The other half say, boy, you're, you know, these are, look really interesting and, and I can see the potential here. And, and usually it's the color of their hair that 
dictates <laughs> which side is, that is on. Um, and, and so, you know, I think we're, we're starting to see this information and again, this digital pathology. It, it, these types of changes, when you change the culture of a field, um, the culture of medicine, it takes a generation. And so a lot of what we're focusing on, again, is training the next generation of physician innovators to think differently. Well, we want to leave time for questions from our audience. Yes. So just curious, when you're thinking about the types of cancer, are there certain cancers that lend themselves better to your early research than others? Or are there some that are tricky from a therapeutic perspective? Yeah, yeah, we think that what we're seeing here and with these vesicles is really universal across all cancer types. Now, we do know certain cancers will put out more of these vesicles and, 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 and change in different ways. So brain tumors, breast cancers, uh, tend to be more, produce more of these vesicles than, than others. Um, but, you know, there's certain, again, uh, I think we think all cancer cells will use this mechanism to send information and signals out to the body. And just trying to decode what that information is is, is a challenge for the, for the scientists. Um, there's other diseases too. So we're looking at Alzheimer's, uh, neurodegenerative diseases, just even in exercise. When you, you know, exercise, if you're at altitude, if you injure a muscle, your muscle cells will, will put out uh, these, these vesicles as it, probably a, a way of informing the rest of the body that something's injured and we need to repair something as well. My wife, she's a professor uh, as well at, uh, at Illinois, and she studies uh, some of these vesicles in, in, the, uh, in the area of aging and senescence. And she really thinks that these vesicles, um, as we age, these vesicles are what tells the whole body to age. And, and is there a way of understanding that language and, and slowing it down or processing it? So uh, the point is that there's, there's a lot of information. These cells use different mechanisms to spread this information. And this is really new to a lot of us scientists. Is it possible that vesicles are not negative, that they are doing a positive thing? They are, true. It, um, so even in states of health, right, they're naturally signaling other cells, you know, that we have to engage. You think about it, how, you know, how does one cell uh, in one part of the body just kind of recruit the, the rest of the body, the physiology of the, the whole body to just start, you know, repairing injuries or treating a disease, removing something. So there's a whole level of coordination here. And that's a very positive thing that, that these vesicles are doing. If you were to look at a um, transplant organ or a tissue or whatever, and when the body is starting to reject it, yeah. to go in and look at the tissue to see what's happening, and then use that in any way to use that information to correlate getting the body to use something like that to then reject a tumor, would that? Yeah, absolutely, and it's great that you're you know you're already thinking about you know, other areas, other ways to use this information, right? And that's a question in transplant, organ transplant. You know, how is that, that organ being rejected? Um, you know, is it being accepted? How functional is it? Is it, you know, getting better or getting worse? Um, and, and a lot of that comes down to metabolism and cell function and cell dynamics. And, and so, exactly, some of these, these methods could be used to assess that functional state of, of different tissues. Now, it's a challenge if that's a, you know, if it's a liver transplant, the accessibility is a challenge. But, um, but if you can, you know, look at biopsies or even, you know, with a fiber, uh, assess that, that transplanted organ, um, you might be able to tell those differences as well. So that's an area to think about. 
That's about all the time we have for this evening. If you want to hear this presentation again, or if you want to share it with a friend, once again, we encourage you to check out our podcast, Science, Science Straight, Straight Up, wherever you get your podcasts. And may all your vesicles be good ones. <laughs> George, George and I want to thank Telluride Science for the privilege of moderating these amazing and informative talks again this summer. And let's all thank Dr. Stephen Bopart for a great evening. Yeah, That's it for this edition of Science Straight Up. If you want to look at one of Dr. Bopart's images that made the cover of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, here's a nerdy way to do it. Use a search engine like Google or Bing or whatever. Search for PNAS November 2019. It's well worth the effort. Our program was recorded at the Telluride Conference Center in Mountain Village, Colorado. And Dean Raleigh of Dragonfire Productions was our superb audio engineer. A big thanks to our sponsors, Alpine Bank and the Telluride Mountain Village Homeowners Association. The executive director of Telluride Science is Mark Kozak, and Cindy Fusting is managing director. Annie Carlson runs donor relations, and Sarah Friedberg is lodging and operations manager. For more information, to hear all our podcasts, and if you want to donate to the cause, go to telluridescience.org. I'm Judy Muller. And I'm George Lewis, inviting you to join us next time on Science Straight Up.